Most of my family members don't know what I do and never, never reach out. And when they start reaching out to me about should I buy this NFT, <laughs> and really what they should be doing is paying off some of their loans and credit cards. Oh, I thought you were going to say buying Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they, they, were, they were asking about Doge a year <laughs> ago. Um, you know, that concerns me. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. John, it's great to have you back in the saddle here. Glad to be back. I'm back in, actually, it's sunny Seattle. I miss the bad weather here. It was great. Well, it's great to have you back because our guest this week is right up your alley. He is entrepreneur, software engineer, and investor Aviel Ginsberg, general partner at Founders Co-op, the former Techstars managing director for Amazon's Alexa Accelerator, and he was the co-founder of social analytics platform Simply Measured, which was acquired by Sprout Social back in 2017. Aviel, it's great to have you here. That's great to be here. Super excited. Before you and John jump into the investing in VC and startup weeds, I want to ask you a, a big picture question because sure. before the sun came out today, I was going down a pretty deep hole on this whole work from home pandemic thing personally. And it got me to thinking, how has this period, these past two years, impacted the whole startup scene from your perspective? So much of what you guys do, and frankly, what we do at GeekWire in support of that is in-person events, coffees, physical interaction. Like, What have the past two years meant to the startup world from your perspective? It's a big question, so I'll take it a couple directions. I think number one is it's been chaos, and chaos has led to unexpected results. And in some cases, I think there have been you know, positives that have come out of it, but I think there's there's been many, many, and probably many more negatives that have come out of it. You know, I'd say from from my own working style, my partner Chris and I are are known for walking meetings many times to to founders' chagrins of where we invite them over to to our office on the University of Washington campus, and hopefully they're in good enough shape to go on a brisk hour walk. And you know, back in the day, we would do five to eight of those a day. But that's been one thing with the pandemic, where as soon as we knew that you know you you could be safely outside with people, we brought those back. So I've been been doing my best to to have some similarity to to what things used to look like. Not having events, not having the serendipity of running into people and being forced to create this cadence of I mean, I even have calendar invites and these reminders of you haven't talked to this person in this long, this long. Before it was I would just run into them at a Geekwire event. I'd run into them at this meetup. And that going away has has required me and I think a lot of folks to build new muscles and a lot of new you know, sort of routines and processes around staying in touch with people. And I think that lack of serendipity is a big negative for the startup ecosystem because that's sort of what startups are, is they are they're they're lightning in a bottle that that usually doesn't necessarily happen for a very specific reason, but because a couple people met, had a similar experience that turned into something. And I think for our portfolio companies. You know, we've seen some companies struggle where they they are, you know, very much about in-person team bonding, collaboration, innovation comes from being in, in rooms together. People who are great managers, but they manage through reading body signals and people and things and that just suddenly went away. And then there's been other folks who, you know, have, have thrived by being able to build remote teams where they can bring in great talent from outside of the region and integrate them in a much more seamless fashion than you just sort of bolting on a remote employee and pretending that, you know, putting them on a screen in a room is, is going to do it. So I, I think, you know, we've seen the positives and it's let some companies scale. It's caused serious struggles for others in terms of, of our work. I think we've, we've found a middle ground, but I think all in all, it has diminished the serendipity within the startup ecosystem. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm super hopeful returns in, in not too long of a time. I love the story about the walking meetings with you and Chris DeVore, your, your partner there at Founders Co-op. I think that's sort of a trademark that I'm glad you were at least able to preserve. Part of the trademark is it may be raining out and I'll probably still be wearing Birkenstocks and that throws some people off too. Aviel, on the flip side, I've heard from some investors that this new environment of doing deals has actually led them to places that they didn't think they would go because they are getting in contact with entrepreneurs and 
just in the virtual world. Is there an example in your portfolio of, of a deal maybe you've done that came across your transom in the virtual realm that maybe you wouldn't have you wouldn't have come across in that serendipitous way? I'll say one thing about it first, which is that because of Techstars and the Alexa program specifically, I have done hundreds of first meetings, second meetings, and even investments with founders nationally and internationally where I haven't met them until, you know, checks already been signed. And in some cases, we've already been been working together for quite a while. So this transition, I think, was was easier because of it. But I'm, I'm just looking here at our, our 10 most recent investments and two, okay, I'll do one, two, three, six of them. I, I have not met the founders in person. Um, when wow. I go back previously, would have would have met all, all of the others. I'd say so one, not even one, a walking th- meeting with them. You know, in, in some cases, some of these folks, if they're in Portland, if they're in Canada, if they're just in a different area than Seattle right now because of the pandemic. So we, we're a regional fund. So we we will invest in companies that have a gravity in the Pacific Northwest. So usually that's HQ, but that could mean that, you know, you you started the company here or early customers are here or some, some other sort of gravity around the region. But, you know, I'm not getting in the car. I'm not getting in a plane and going down to, to Portland and Vancouver. And in some cases... You know, it's it's just worked out that <laughs> we have kids, we have complicated schedules, and you know what, Zoom works pretty well. I, I would say one thing though that that has been interesting for us in, in terms of deal flow is that when we have invested in founders that that we have not met before in person, there's usually some strong shared connections within our network of folks that they've worked with previously. So like, there's triangulation for us. It hasn't been the like. I don't know you at all. I your network I just plopped into serendipitously and it's across the country. That's not been us. For us it's still been through that same founders co-op network with that heavy Pacific Northwest focus, but hasn't been as much about pure in-person looking you face to face. How are you thinking about that gravity of the Northwest in this time when people can be anywhere and you have founders moving out of state and teams so distributed, does it matter as much anymore? Is it still a thing? Are we still a community here in Seattle? Are we still a Seattle startup community? It's a hard question. And I mean, I, I, I feel every time I give the spiel to a new founder about being a regional fund two plus years into this, I do feel a little ridiculous. But when I look at the founding teams of folks, they're, they're usually people who have a long history being together in person, that could be working together, that could be going to school together, that could be just just being friends and acquaintances. It could be that they met their co-founder at some some friend of a friend or at some event. So like what I'm seeing still is when you look at founding teams, even if they're in different areas, they, they tend to still be within the same like city or spent a long period of time in that together. I mean, honestly, in terms of do I care if you're actually building your company in Seattle? No, not in the same way that, that I would before. But I think what I still care about when, when Chris and I look at companies, it's like, is this a net positive to the region? And you know, in that, like I live here. This is where I'm raising my kids. This is, this is like the, the political ecosystem that I'm part of. This is my community. Part of why I enjoy the work is, is not just like making a good investment, but creating something that's going to be additive to the region trying to still find those connections, even if we don't see them on a day-to-day basis today, you know, matters down the line. Yeah. I wonder if that's going to get frayed. I I worry about this. I I agree. But I just want to say Seattle is a state of mind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I I do. I I do worry about it though. The the in-person connections, not only inside teams, but externally, I feel like we've given up more than we've gotten. I agree with you, Aviel. I think from my perspective, just just speaking to myself and my own interactions with folks in the community, there are things that virtual interactions bring that I didn't have before. It's opened my eyes to new possibilities in that way. And yet the lack of in-person connection hurts. And I've tried to look for little hacks, little things to create connections that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I have started scrolling through the Facebook birthdays and rather than just sort of, you know, saying happy birthday to somebody, I've, I've bought some cards on Amazon and for folks who I have the address for, I'll try and like sit down on Sunday and spend 10 minutes, you know, just writing out little birthday cards. And I'll tell you, people are stunned. They're stunned when they get the card in the mail, like what? So little stuff like that. But I mean, you have to go out of your way to do it. 
but people want to be together. To your point, you're you're doing it because people want to be together. I mean, I think prior to Omicron, like we were really seeing lots of portfolio companies returning to in-person because, you know, there's some companies and cultures that don't want it. And I think it's sort of pushed folks to be like, being remote first isn't a big deal anymore. Being partially remote, it's not a big deal anymore. But I, I, I'm firmly not a believer in that it's all remote going forward. I think in the same way that you can pick, do I want to work at a big company? Do I want to work at a small company? Like, this is really just another axis that's being added to, to the equation. I think there's going to be different impacts on the types of companies, the types of roles, the types of career paths, the, the types of things you want to get out of work. And I think that's fine. There's just more choice that's coming out of it. Just those of us that like being in person with people, we just got to wait a little bit longer. But I do firmly believe that a lot of that will come back. I know John is chomping at the bit to jump into discussions of investments, Web3, Metaverse, everything that you're involved in. So let's do that right after the break. You're listening to GeekWire, and we will be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our guest this week is Aviel Ginsberg, the general partner at Founders Co-op. John, I know you've got tons of questions because I've seen your notes on this. Well, yeah, not really a question. Well, I, I do have tons of questions, but I thought a fun way to structure this would be to just throw out some of the hot buzzwords and terms that we're hearing around the GeekWire offices, and I'm sure you're hearing around the Founders Co-op offices, and just kind of get your perspective, and we'll all riff here on what we think about it. So let's let's jump in and start. Let's start with one that obviously gets a lot of play right now, crypto. Aviel, give us the breakdown on crypto. Are you doing crypto deals? We did our first crypto deal at like the worst time possible. We invested in a company called Strix Leviathan, which now has a, a sort of spin out called Makara. We did that investment. Now uh, I'll look at the actual date. That investment closed the first week of 2018. So basically just as Bitcoin crashed into the ground. So actually when we were when we were we were still raising the rest of our fund and the question I was getting from everyone is is this a crypto fund because your first investment is actually a crypto related investment and nobody wanted to touch it it was like it was like a it was a bad sign Co correct and we're like no it just so happens that our first it could have been our 10th it could have been our first we love the founder we love the opportunity we're not a crypto fund oh my god but since then we made another investment in the company called Trusted Key which is more in the the sort of crypto identity space which is exited and you know, honestly, since then, not another single crypto investment, though we are looking at a few now, and we had one company that has pivoted into being um, sort of a, a DeFi-related crypto investment. But to your point about crypto, it's really funny, the rebranding. Getting the question of, do you invest in crypto? I would get that question, like I said, all the time. And now the question is, do you invest in Web3? And what what a more what a more comfortable branding than uh, than do you invest in crypto? So do you think they're the same? So I think what Web three clarifies a little bit is when you say crypto, it, it was like, are you investing in? Because really, in the early days, it was it was pure finance. It was like, so you're just investing in as like a hedge fund? Is it a trading platform? Like, what is it? I think Web three has been a comfortable way to sort of bucket together the distributed applications, DAOs, everything else all into a bucket, which is like, oh, no, there's gaming, there's this, it's a whole big bucket. And I think now when I hear more crypto, I think more like exchanges, finance products and things like that. And Web3 is kind of the things that are that are built on top of it. And, you know, candidly, like, we are actively looking at a bunch of investments in the space, but it's a thing, but Chris and I have not gone off the deep end, I think, in the same way that, that some other folks have. I think the areas that we're the most fascinated by are, are those in the sort of distributed finance section, as well as what are, what are some of the picks and shovels and infrastructure applications that are going to be needed to actually build a, a, a thriving ecosystem. And we should step back here for a second, because I think it's important for folks to that maybe aren't completely immersed in this to maybe understand Web3 or crypto or all, all the metaverse, all this, it really comes down as I'm understanding and I'm, I'm a novice to this, but it's kind of the 
centralized versus decentralized web. And there, it seems like there's a big battle going on right now. Like, is it going? Is this going to be a de- decentralized environment that's Web three that it's like not controlled by the big power brokers, not controlled by the VCs? You know, I mean, you know, Jack Dorsey came out here recently and was like, "Hey, you know, uh, th- this is all just a play by the VCs to control everything." And and I mean, I can see that point that like eventually this all does get kind of get centralized. So. I guess, where do you come down on that front? Is this going to be the new wild, wild west frontier that there's tons of opportunity or is it going to be controlled by the big power players? Already you're seeing there's sort of centralized points like OpenSea and Infura and like areas where it's like, it's really expensive to operate a fully distributed system. So there's this natural tendency to take advantage of centralization, even if it's sort of faux centralization to to make things work better. Like software is hard. There's a reason why we went to centralization. I think people shouldn't forget the fact that, I mean, when I was cutting my teeth as a kid on the web, it was decentralized. I was dialing in to servers. Everything was was all on its own in these, these weird corners of the web without a search engine, it's like, what's what server am I on? Where is this thing? And I think we're kind of in, in that stage right now. I think I'm a little bit skeptical that that the value is in the decentralization. I think it will centralize over time. I think some of the value really is in that the incentive structure is, is different, um, that people in theory can have more control over their privacy, have more control over what, what they own, what they bring from place to place. But I, I don't know that the, the big push of like, this is about decentralization is true because you could argue that where the web started was it did start with, with sort of the, the, same, the same vision. But the thing that I'm waiting for that, that seems to be missing, when I think about the rise of, of every generation of, of the web, it, there's been this amazing open source community who's just doing things just because. It's not about like necessarily financial incentives. Some of the things they're doing make no sense. Like, why are you spending your time on it? I mean, I, I remember in, in my early days starting, I started writing code because I just loved doing it and contributing to open source in the same way. And I'm, I'm just sort of wondering, where are a lot of those folks right now? Everything seems to be about, you know, everyone has their own incentive with their project. And that's kind of scared me a little bit with, with Web3 is like, everybody has an angle when they're trying to recommend something to you or tell you why you should use something. And that's been a little bit of a hard pill for me to swallow in, in saying like, do I believe in this project? Do I believe in this product? And when I think about where are the opportunities that I'm comfortable investing in, it tends to be in more the, the pick and shovel companies that are just making it easier for those companies to exist because it sort of scares me when, when I feel like everybody has, is doing something for, for financial gain. So Web3, scale of 1 to 10, 1 being completely disinterested, 10 being you're just completely 100% on board. Where, where do you fall? <sighs> I mean, I'm going to probably make myself look bad saying this, but I mean, I think I'm probably like a a six. There's some days when I'm a four and some days I'm an eight. That's right. I, I said, I thought you were going to be about a five. It sounded like by your description. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, there's so much other interesting stuff to work on. Like, I still love SaaS. I still love, you know, what's going on in, in ML ops and cloud infrastructure. There's so much work to do in digitizing, you know, tons of these businesses that have missed the first two waves of the web. Some days I'll be like, wow, this is so cool. And that those are the days where I'll bump up to an eight and be like, this is the next big thing. This is exciting. And then I'll go back to that and be like, why am I, why am I spending my time here when there's still so much opportunity um, and so many exciting challenges to, to be overcome in this area? Speaking of this area, there's another uh, related technology. I want to get your thoughts on NFTs non-fungible tokens. Where are you at on these? I mean, if you can give me that scale, is there a zero? Um, so, <laughs> Sure. I mean, look, like a look, zero. Look, look, like I think I have a complicated relationship with it. So my, my father is an artist and that is all he's ever been. And throughout his career, he went from selling paintings for no money to at the peak, selling a painting for $50,000. So, I mean, we're, we're talking like real business, real money moving. And this was my, my life growing up. When I'd ask my dad, what is art? What do you sell? Where does the price come from? You know, it's about I'm selling, you know, an experience. I'm selling a story. I'm selling a memory. I'm selling like, and I mean, I was in these sales pitches. I was used as a kid in some of these sales pitches. I've worked with his dealers. There's good people, but I'm seeing all of the same shit bags that surrounded my dad's world, by the way, money launderers, everything in this exact same ecosystem. And it's just like, hey, this is a new 
This is a new angle for us to scale all of the dirty things that have been going on in the art world and shady, shady shit and scale it out, do it in a way with better branding. And like, I, I do not like it. I do not like it one bit. And I'm really worried for a lot of people that are gonna, gonna lose their ass on something that, that has no value. I think there's interesting angles of NFTs. Like, I think there's some people who are thinking about like, you know, this gives you unique access to something, how it potentially could relate to gaming and things like that. But a lot of what we're seeing today, it gives me deep, deep fear and concern because of, of my experiences. And you have a great Twitter handle. We should have folks follow you at Aviel, very easy to find. So when I, and I know if you've posted about this in the past, but like when you posted recently, I think a photo of the Grand Canyon, you said, is this an NFT? So, so this is sarcasm, right? You are, you uh-huh, must, uh-huh. because there are people that are thinking that is an NFT, a photo of the Grand Canyon. And, and, and sure, and you know, they're not wrong, that is an NFT. But what, what I guess I'm saying here is like, why does that matter? Why do you care if that's an NFT? Why do I care that that's an NFT? To me, it just feels like there's a lot of hype around a system of, it's, it's a lot of get, get rich quick. I, you know, I know it's scary when I have these family members most of my family members don't know what I do and never, never reach out. And when they start reaching out to me about, should I buy this NFT? <laughs> and really what they should be doing is paying off some of their loans and credit cards. Oh, I thought you were going to say buying Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they, they were, they were asking about Doge a year <laughs> yeah, ago. Um, you know, <laughs> that, that doesn't, that, that concerns me. This all ties in then t- to another term I wanted to throw out to you, which I know you have thoughts on, because a lot of people have said NFTs are, are, are a core component of the metaverse. So how do you think about the metaverse in a big picture frame here? Because there are a lot of terms we're throwing out here, NFTs, metaverse, crypto, Web3, and, and they're all kind of looped under this metaverse umbrella, correct? I, I think so. I mean, it's it's changing on such a constant basis where like sometimes I'll be in a conversation, what's metaverse? And metaverse is more about like, what is that VR world that we all live in together? Sometimes it's that integrated with the distributed economy. Sometimes it's that integrated with God knows what. So like, yes, I think a lot of people frame it all together where they're trying to find some branding of like, we don't know what to do with Web3. But the metaverse is clearly a thing because, and I'll talk about this, it's sort of always been a thing. Like it's, to me, it's not a question of, of, of if, it's a question of when. And I honestly feel like a lot of people are trying to like strap the outside of finance. We don't know what to do with Web3. Let's strap that to this like metaverse bandwagon and woohoo, now, now we've got a real need for this. So on, on metaverse, like you know, some people, sometimes when people ask me, where did, where'd you go to college? I'll answer Azeroth. Cause like, I think I spent more time raiding in world of Warcraft than I actually did in classes in college. When you create a virtual environment where you can build strong emotional relationships with other people, you can build things together. You can experience things together. You can go through emotional experiences together. You can find things together. Like we were in the beta, my roommate and I were in the beta for World of Warcraft. So it was the closed beta before it came out. And the two of us said, you know, if if somehow we're both, you know, alive in our 80s and we're single, like we're gonna join the same guild and we're just gonna play this every day. This is gonna be, this is gonna be our retirement. Cause this is like, this is heaven. And look, and I think we've seen with the pandemic, the move to remote work, the more engaging environments, like we're we're an investor in a, in a company called Spot Virtual. When you say the founders co-op offices, the founders co-op offices these days pretty much just exist in the metaverse. I have a designed and built 3D office that you can walk through that I take meetings in. And like, it's pretty fantastic. Like, I think, I think we're heading there. And I assume one of your dad's paintings is hanging on the wall as an NFT. So <laughs> it is hanging on the wall. I Whoa. actually took photos of painting <laughs> of my dad's paintings and I put them on the walls in my office inside of my spot office. How um, much can someone buy them for in Doge? Uh, I mean, I, I would accept a few thousand if anyone wants it. That works for me. It's it's interesting to hear this coming together like this. You know, in one of my favorite podcasts, it's Smartless, Sean Hayes, the actor, always talks to his co-hosts about how this can relate to 
what his sister in the Midwest might understand. And I always think about my mom who listens religiously to this podcast and what she's going to take away from this in that tangible way. Like what is meaningful here? You're getting to some of it here with the the real connections that people have in the metaverse. But Aviel, what, what is really going to be meaningful in four, five, 10 years coming out of all this? To give you the answer to that, I need to take one step back, which is sort of where the areas of NFTs and, and stuff make sense in a, in a metaverse. So I, I told you for, from my time in, in Azeroth why it was valuable, why I still think back on it fondly, even though, oh man, did I screw up, uh, got some bad grades and screwed up my, my in-person social life. But you know, we spent a lot of time in these large raid groups trying to get these extremely rare artifacts. And I would it w- I was sometimes missing out on the enjoyment of being that team and collaborating on taking down that like dungeon boss because I was so focused on what is the drop going to be? Is it my turn to get the drop? I really want those transcendence pants. God, I mean, looking back on it, I was like, why was I so obsessed with those pants? And then thinking about like when I think about the world, the amount of time I spent in the auction houses there, buying stuff, trading stuff, trying to get more gold. Oh, that rare thing just showed up. I should get that. I want to add that to my character. You know, honestly, I think that the dopamine hits of that is what kept me in the environment long enough for me to create these relationships and engage and, and like, and now look, but when I look back fondly, I think all those other components were stupid, but if they didn't exist, I'm not sure I would have showed up every day if there wasn't that constant dopamine hit that was getting me to interact with these people and be part of this world and 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 go on these like literal quests. And so like I do see an area where those things, you know, could could play together. And so if I think about how it all plays forward, like, you know, I, I think there's a there's a, a non-shitty way that the two can be incorporated, but I think there there is a real a real world where like, I'm not in the camp of like, everyone's going to have their own digital avatar. I, I just think that like, we will have more and more opportunities for us to have human interactions where we build things together. I don't really like the term like collaborate. I think it's more like, do you feel like you were doing something as part of a team? That's different than a, than a meeting. Some meetings feel that way, but you know, Todd, do all of your meetings feel like we did something as a team or do they just feel like we all sat here in a meeting, we read status reports and stuff like that. And I think like when it transitions into, into like building something together, I think that's where the metaverse gets exciting and that's where I want it to go. And Hey, if, if NFTs, crypto and things are part of the dopamine hits that, that help sort of fuel the innovation because they provide capital, they provide, um, you know, reasons for people to keep engaging and be more interested. I think it'll be great. So I think in the near term, there's going to be a lot of clumsy mistakes. There's going to be probably some some cash grabs, some really messed up financial incentives as like NFTs and things are brought into MMORPGs and other stuff as the lines between virtual currency and real currency, you know, go away. I mean, I remember back in the World of Warcraft days, it was illegal for you to, I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I would spend money on eBay to buy gold from farmers because I didn't want to spend all the time farming and I could get banned for doing that. You know, and now we're in a world where it's like, okay, just cash in, cash out, move all this around. And like, you know, that may be a great thing for moving things forward. But I think there's going to be a lot of sort of ugliness and misaligned uh, incentives and, and mistakes along the way, as well as a lot of people who are all trying to like own this opportunity. Everyone's trying to look for what is what is the next like mobile slash iPhone like opportunity. You know, I ran the Alexa Accelerator. A lot of people were trying to pretend that that was, was voice, myself included. That was wrong. Now everyone is is hopping on on this bandwagon, and I think it may be the real deal. But is it the real deal in one year, three years, or five? I think probably closer to to five. Why was that wrong? Why did a voice not become the power tool to move us forward? Yeah, in my in my opinion, voice is multi-touch. Voice is not mobile. So if you think about the phone before multi-touch, it was cool. You could do some stuff on it. But when you actually added a multi-touch, think about how valuable that that phone became. Without multi-touch, you couldn't play Angry Birds. You, you couldn't do a lot of the, the things that, that we're able to do today. And so for voice, what makes you know Alexa work is amazing, and, and devices like Alexa is amazing ASR. So it is that they reached a level of speech recognition that when you talk to me, I will know the words that you're saying to an extent that it's good enough every time that I can use this reliably. And then they got barely to an to a level of, of natural language understanding and LU, which is like, and I understand the context of enough of what you're saying to perform certain actions. But I think what we've discovered is 
the level of, of NLU that we've reached has not sort of continued on the same level of development as ASR, as computer vision, and that. Outside of you asking, you know, giving specific commands or doing basic things with voice, it's really, really difficult to pull that off. You know, it can be difficult for a human to maintain context without a physical screen. It can be really difficult for you to give a complicated command to have a, a sort of conversation with something that's voice activated. I think there's a reason why you're seeing more and more screens in, in voice activated devices. And so I think what voice is, is like, can you imagine if the sort of multi-touch was released? I mean, the same way that sort of like the Surface. It's like the Surface, the old Surface. You know, the one that you think you used to have at like GeekWire events, like the big table? The big ass table. Yes. I think that was the official subtitle on the brand. So imagine the like the, the big ass table came before the smartphone. That's sort of, to me, what the challenge has been with voice. And like, in, in the context of multiverse, I actually think that like voice is super powerful in, in VR experiences and, and others there where like you don't you you have a more immersive experience where you don't have a keyboard in front of you. So there there is a real chance that that voice may end up being the multi-touch for the multiverse. But we'll we'll see how that all plays out. John, I know you've got a lot more to ask. We're gonna do that right around the corner. You're listening to GeekWire, and we will be right back with Aviel Ginsberg. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our guest is Aviel Ginsberg, general partner at Founders Co-op. I was reminiscing personally, just internally as I do now, since I can't talk to anybody in, in my home office. Your original startup, almost 20 years ago, had this amazing name and amazing story behind it. It was called Untitled Startup, which I loved. That became Simply Measured over time, right? Yep. Would that fly today if you or someone, some other entrepreneur were to be that bold <laughs> as to come up with that kind of name? Well, so first off, I'll say that if you go to untitledstartup.com, it redirects to Founders Co-op. I negotiated as part of the acquisition of Simply Measured that I personally got the untitledstartup.com domain. So I, I kept that. I have that. So um, there could be another. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, I've, I've, I've kept it around. Well, aren't we all untitled to... startups until, you know, I mean. <laughs> you mean personally? Yeah, like our lives are untitled. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell people like the, the idea behind Untitled Startup was that you know, my co-founders and I knew that we were going to build a business. We knew it was going to be in a general space and we wanted to get, you know, feedback from folks and do rapid iterations on what we should build. And, you know, we needed to incorporate and raise some money for us to quit our jobs. And, you know, that's, that's what that was. In today's market, it's so much easier to raise capital. I think it is a lot more acceptable for you to say, raise three or $4 million for an idea and then completely pivot on it. Or it be, you know, a weak idea. Back then, for somebody to give you a six-figure amount of money, you know, we had to really lean into the fact that like we don't know what we're building. Whereas I think today there's just a lot more acceptance. So I would argue that like untitled startups are founded all the time right now, but they don't have to sort of wear the badge in the same way that that we did. Yeah, they're just valued at 20 million out of the gate, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's in, and by the way, it's this some of that is is soul crushing. Our, our series A post money valuation was about $5 million. Like we, we had, we, we, you know, I'm just like, what, what is, what is this world? Well, let's talk about this for a little bit. Cause you're in the, you're in the weeds here. I mean, we've been calling it deal mania here at GeekWire, just given the level of investment going on record level investment in the venture capital ranks, you got SPACs, IPOs, M&As hot, everything's hot. And so the, the venture capital reports just came out this week. You've seen a doubling of venture capital over 2020 in 2021. And that was a record year. So, I mean, it's just crazy how much money is flowing. There are now over 900 unicorns, these companies that are valued at more than a billion dollars or more. In fact, on GeekWire this week, we put together a list of the 15 companies in the Seattle area that have reached this status. That's up from 10 
last year. And in fact, three of the companies graduated from unicorn status. I think two were in your portfolio. Auth0 sold for $6.5 billion to Okta and Remitly went public. So they got kicked out of the U- unicorn group. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just insane how much money is flowing. The founder of CB Insights and I were emailing this week. He released their report on venture capital and we we're just going back and forth and we've both covered the industry for so long. And his word to me was, it's just bonkers. It's bonkers. So how are you investing in this environment? Is it bonkers? Um, what's going on? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, it's it's crazy, but you you have to play in the environment. Like I think as a VC, like we don't get to to pick the game. We get to to make our moves inside of the game and you always have to be reacting. So like certainly what I'm doing is not sticking my head in the sand and being like, I can't write any deals because this is ridiculous. And I'm also not going nuts and being like, I've got to, I got to, you know, catch them all. I got to get up rounds all over. We've, we've got to get nuts. Um, I would say tactically, and then I can talk about some other things. One thing that, that we have experienced is like, obviously when we raised our fund, we didn't know what this climate would be like. So we've had to rethink like, what does our model look like? Cause I think any, the biggest mistake you can make is like, well, we raised for a specific model, which was these valuations, these percent ownerships, these number of deals. You, you can't operate that way. Candidly, that's also part of why Chris and I don't like thematic funds because we find that thematic funds always change their themes because the themes that are hot change all the time. Um, and I think you have to evolve your model too. So what we're seeing is our valuations for, for a lot of the deals that we're doing are actually not higher than what we saw before because what we're doing is we're investing earlier, higher conviction checks. So we're still able to get the ownership, but it may be earlier and riskier. And then we're finding other deals where it may be repeat founders, you know, more, more advanced products, more advanced opportunities. And then we're investing in owning less. So we're sort of taking a bit of a barbell approach because we think the middle ground of just some of these, some of these like middle deals where it's like, it's not the best team you've ever seen and it's not the best opportunity you've ever seen. But hey, the price is not terrible. The idea is pretty good and the team's pretty good. And we're trying to avoid those. And I think that's that's what, what a lot of people do in these scenarios. But speaking of the valuations, like I think there's a couple things at play here. You know, number one, you know, the the market that you raise your first dollars at is usually a different market than the one that that you transact your company for. So it's it's never I think if you're trying to play everything all the way through at all times, which is like the valuations you're seeing at the early stage should map all the way perfectly to the public company multiples. I think you're wrong. I think that stuff has gotten a little bit out of out of hand in terms of, of some of the valuations that we've seen. But at the same time, I think the opportunity for software is larger than than a lot of us have thought. You know, yes, yeah, some of these companies, the public companies have crazy valuations, but some of the ones with with valuations in the tens of billions, even at like, you know, a 20x revenue multiple, they're justified. And I think even looking back five years ago, we thought those were one, two, three billion dollar companies, not because of the multiples even, but because of just the scale and that these businesses continue to scale at the size that they're at. And so when you look at it, I mean, I, I remember, you know, the days of running Simply Measured being like, oh man, that company just sold for a billion dollars. Are we ever going to be able to? Because now that billion was already spent. Is there even another billion dollars for a for an analytics company? Um, you know, and I think we're just, we were just so wildly wrong. And I think as you've seen the unicorn turn into the decacorn, you're seeing more dollars get invested because it's like, you know what, do I really care if I invest at a 20 million or an 80 million? If it's a $5 billion outcome, what I care more about is missing it. And so, so what I'll get to here is I think, well, yes, there's always some, some frenzy and some craziness. VC is a, is a, it's a power law based business, which is like, you just need those big winners. I think where it gets scary, honestly, is is for founders, where it's like it can feel great that you've you've got a lot of money on paper, but you've also taken a lot more cash, and so you have a lot higher preference stack, which means that you know this this business really better work and better really be huge. Otherwise, you probably shouldn't have taken that much money. And I think more and more founders are being pushed in that direction um, than they probably should be. And the one thing that we've coached all of our portfolio founders on is like. You know, it used to be like faux pas for you to take money off the table, even the meaningful amounts. And when we see those opportunities, especially for extended teams and not just the founding teams, we're all for it because it's like, if you're going to play in this market where all of your competitors are getting all this cash, you kind of need the cash to compete. But at the same time, you're asked to play a different game than maybe you signed up for. And so I think there's all these different elements that are swirling around to help keep, keep incentives aligned. 
Um, and I think one last thing that most people that, that bothers me with with the you know when people are like is it going to correct a big issue we have is like in theory you think the VCs make money off of selling companies but larger funds make money off of fees you know two percent of the total assets under management every year and so there's an incentive for company for for VCs to keep writing larger and larger checks which in many cases may mean larger and larger valuations so you have more and more money under management so you have more and more fees and you know as a as a VC it could be 12 years of doing the job until you see your first carry check. And so that that matters. When you say take money off the table in this context when you're talking to founders, what exactly does that mean? Sorry to be dense on that, but yeah, I, I yeah. don't know what, what, what that'll usually mean is like um, in some cases it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars to single digit millions of sort of like, hey, you've been at this, whether this startup or a bunch of startups for many, many years, your peers who made the you know wise choice of going to you know Google, Amazon, Facebook and earn those paychecks. They all have their houses, they have their this and that and you're you're here and have all your eggs in one basket. So that's what I'm referring to. Compensation. Yeah. Yeah, so like selling some of their stock. So what are you doing to try to compete in this environment where the dollars are getting bigger? And the dollars are numerous, right? It's like it's yeah. no longer that you're in you're in a position of power just because you have dollars. I, I guess you said you're you're going real early, which is a strat. Like you got to get in at the first meetings. Yeah, we we go early and and look, Chris and I are operators. Like we're not we're not traditionally trained VCs, which can be to our detriment sometimes. Um, but where we love helping out is is getting in the weeds and being like another founder who has been been through this and seen this movie hundreds of times now. And so where we try to differentiate is be like, you know, the, the, I hate the term like value add VC, but like, I think when I get the, the, like the, the, the most satisfaction I get from the day is when somebody's like, you have been so helpful or you're the most helpful or one of the most helpful investors that we have. And I mean that in like a real way. And that can be rolling your sleeves up and doing every, every interview for new hires for a company, just because, they need the perspective or don't have the bandwidth. Like it can be a, a, any number of things and doing enough of that over time and then getting the founders that we've previously backed to tell the new founders like, hey, these these folks really will lean in and help you. That's helped us win deals. But I don't want to pretend that it's not harder than ever. Like I think that that it is a founder's market right now. VCs are are having to sell founders at the early stage, probably more so than great founders are having to sell VCs on investing in them. Before we wrap up here, I mentioned the the unicorn list, these 15 unicorns that we uh, surveyed across the Seattle area. And it's just, it's amazing to see the, the different types of businesses, how they've grown and what they've done, what they've done to succeed. And as I said, you guys have been very successful at Founders Co-op. I mean, you had two companies, Remitly and Auth0 exit at very high valuation. So they're no longer unicorns because they're either acquired or publicly held now. But of the list of 15, you've got, I think you've got three, Imperity, Carrot, and who am I missing? And Outreach, right, right, which is valued at, as of the last funding round, they were valued at $4.4 billion, So they're very highly valued. So you've had a lot of success here. But when you look across this list of the other, let's say the other 12 on there, I'm sure you came across some of these entrepreneurs at one point <laughs> and said no because they didn't take your money or the, they're not in your portfolio. So when you look at this or, or, group, or we tripped over ourselves. Or you yeah. tripped over yourself. So where, where did you trip over yourselves? Which one of these uh, did you miss? So miss is a hard, hard word. Um, <laughs> so convoy. So li- little background on convoy. So founders, Dan Lewis, Grant Goodell. So Grant. Um, one of my first friends here in Seattle, Grant's previous company, Massively Fun. I co-founded with him as sort of a part-time co-founder while running what was still then Untitled Startup. That business actually started at a Ruby on Rails hackathon and then Founders Co-op invested in that company. And then, you know, it was, it was a difficult business for a variety of reasons. Grant was lucky enough to land that business at, at Amazon. You know, he was lifting his head up, thinking about, I want to do his next thing. Dan was starting to reach out to folks to be like, hey, I'm interested in the startup community. And so my partner, Chris, actually introduced Dan and Grant to each other and said, hey, when you guys get started, we've got free desks here at Startup Hall that you guys uh, can just grab and use. So Convoy started two desks away from us, and we were 
huge believers in them, the early idea and everything. We had a portfolio company that was struggling, that was going through a pivot. And the pivot was adjacent to where Convoy is. And the founder asked us, um, we asked the founder if, if he was comfortable. He said no. And, you know, you, you always want to do right by your founders, even if the founders of this other company is a former co-founder, a really good friend, you introduce them and they're working in your office. And then that's Convoy. Wow. What a story. Wow. Now, some VCs would have said, screw you to the founder, right? I mean, there's no, there's no part of your agreement with the original entrepreneur that you can't go into that space, right? It's more of an ethical conversation. 100%. Yeah, we, we, we could have done it, but it's it's with the, but then we would have had to live with it. And I don't just mean live with it of like live with the reputation, but like being somebody that does that. Like I don't I don't do this work because it's it's not all about the money. It's it's like I love startups. Part of why I love being a VC and why I'm not a founder anymore is I get to be part of many startups. In my opinion, that's better than being part of one. And you know, part of that is like being on the journey with folks and the ups and downs. And you know, at the end of the day, right? Like there's others on this list that we missed too. So who knows, maybe we picked up one of the ones we picked up, we picked up because we lost this one and, and we got we got lucky in sort of the, the, the grand scheme of the universe because of that. But yeah, that, that is certainly one that every now and then will, will keep us up at night. My dad has this saying, there's a good thing to do and a right thing to do oftentimes in life. And there's a difference. And so I always love it when I see examples of it. And I think this is one. I think you did the right thing in listening to that founder because you were true to the person that you had committed to previously, even if it wasn't good for your portfolio in the long run. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, we should say Convoy, which is the trucking and logistics startup now valued at nearly $4 billion, ranked on the GeekWire 200, number six, very fast growing company and, and doing quite well. Aviel, when you look across the rest of the list there, I mean, it's interesting because you've got companies across and, and you, as you said, you're not thematic investors at Founders Co-op. So, I mean, you play in a lot of different spaces and we've got real estate represented, clean tech, transportation, a lot of enterprise software, of course. Is there a company or an area here where you think they're just on the rocket ship and you can't pick one of the three that you've got already in your portfolio? Because I know you love all those. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would say it's, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, yeah, they're all doing well. One, which has just been so Im impressive to me, especially because it's an area that I wouldn't have seen the opportunity is, is Zenodi. You know, I, I think that that's an area where I've been like, this is a really hard space. This is a difficult customer. Can you build a big enough business? And so I just think that the, the execution there and just if you can actually crack acquisition in the market, how big that can be is is wildly impressive. Yeah. And we should say Zenodi does uh, so enterprise software, but it's specifically targeted to salons and spas. So I think some VCs might see that and say, ah, it's too niche of a market. Um, and it's going to be a hard sale because there are like 700,000 of them across the planet that you got to go and sell to each one of those. So it's a hard business. Yeah, so I, I so so I'm going to sort of skirt the question and say that, and then at the same time, I'd also look at Isertus and be just like, you know, once you can actually crack that market, you're so hard. And so that so they do, you know, sales contract management software, so hard to rip you out. And if you become the de facto leader, the market for that is gigantic. I mean, it's a fantastic list of companies. You made me. You made me pick two. I wish I could talk about all of them. Yeah. The other thing, and I did some math on on the numbers here, which blew me away and just want to get your quick take on it. So I tallied up the funding rounds of these 15 companies over the past 12 months. And I included High Spot's recent, you know, $200 million plus round in that, which just closed. And the total was, this blew me away. The total was $2.3 just across these 15 companies. In the Seattle area in 2021, I went back and I looked at my story from 2018, the full Washington state, 175 companies that raised money in 2018, raised $2 billion total. These 15 companies raised more than every single company the entire year in 2018, which was also, I think, the biggest year on venture capital record in the state since like 2000 or something. Which is, I mean, it just really spoke to me about like how much money is flowing into startups right now. Let's also look at when a lot of those companies were funded in the list. There's obviously a few that are very new and old, 
but there's there's a surprising amount of them that are in that like 2014 to 17 sort of period. And I think that's one thing that we have seen across our portfolio as well, which is there was a long period of time where it was really hard to raise a series B, C, and D as a Seattle-based company. And it was actually like, I want to give a lot of the credit specifically to Tiger Global for starting to invest in here and then other growth funds coming in. And I think that really like opened the floodgate to be like, there's growth stage companies in Seattle. And then you you add in the pandemic and the ability for you know folks to no longer care, like many investors no longer care where companies are based. It's easier to recruit growth stage talent if they don't have to move to Seattle and they can stay where they are. And I think that's even further accelerated this because that's one of my, my criticisms of the Seattle ecosystem as well. We've had amazing technology talent, specifically go-to-market talent in the for growth stage has been something that we're sorely missing because there were just not enough companies where it's like, tell me this startup you scaled from 50 to 100 million. And how many of those companies can you name that existed between 2010 and 2015 in Seattle? So like, where was that talent even coming from? Well, it was the Bay Area and folks would be like, I remember trying to recruit people for Simply Measured. Hey, come up here. And they're like, well, but if it doesn't work out at Simply Measured, I, I have to go to Microsoft. Because also, by the way, Amazon wasn't even that interesting back then. Um, and so they're like, I'm not going to move my family. I stay down here and I, I've got all these options. And so I think that's part of why you're seeing this acceleration as well. Piggybacking on that thought too. And now you have all the Silicon Valley tech giants here. So you've got Facebook and Google and Salesforce and eBay and Dropbox. And I mean, the list goes on and on. And so now the What's talent, the difference? Yeah, the talent ecosystem is, is crazy here. Uh, so there's plenty of places to go and pl- plenty of places to mine talent from. Well, this is fun, Aviel. Always good to catch up. Aviel Ginsberg, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a ton of fun. Aviel Ginsberg is general partner at Founders Co-op, former Techstars Managing Director for Amazon's Alexa Accelerator, and he was the co-founder of social analytics platform Simply Measured, known before that as Untitled Startup, which was acquired by Sprout Social in 2017. You can follow him on Twitter at Aviel. Our podcast is produced by Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.